Mike, I like those words. Jesus was meeting with his disciples one last time before his crucifixion. And he was giving them a general knowledge. He was just telling a lot of different things. You'll find them in the Gospel of John beginning about first chapter 12, 13, all the way through uh, chapter 17 as he just keeps telling them different things. And in chapter 13, there comes a place where he says these words. He said, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And you remember, we've been talking about being blessed, only we've used the word happy, because the word blessing means happy. That's just a windscreen, and there's not a lot of wind in here to mess it up. So, um, blessed and happy basically mean the same thing. Uh, Maybe even contented would be a word for blessed and a definition of it. But we've been talking about happiness, contentedness. And I've given you five keys. You could all tell me what those were, right? Everybody can just one, two, three, four, five. Uh, If you can't, they're on our website. Believe it or not, I'm up to date with that thing. I've got them all on there. Uh, The what? I listened to forgiveness yesterday. You listened to forgiveness yesterday. Did you forgive anybody? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you know the five keys. We've talked about them. But knowing the five keys isn't enough to make you happy. Someone might say to me, okay, pastor, adjustment, usefulness, forgiveness, gratitude, holiness, I know the keys. So why am I not happy? Why is it not working? And this sermon series, these six sermons that I've, that I've done, this is the sixth one, is not a theological series or a theoretical series it's very practical. It's a series that's related to where you are and where you live and where you're at right now. And I would, you know, I, my desire is to help you in a very practical way to make those keys work so that you are happy, that you are contented, that you are, in the biblical word, blessed. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. This, I'm not going to give you another key. I'm going to try to help you put them all together. And I want to, what? I want to give you a key ring to put them on. Imagine that key ring, Earl, being a triangle. Okay? Just think of a triangle. Everybody got a triangle in your mind? Okay? Triangle has three sides. On one side of that... I want you to write down in your mind the word knowledge. Okay? Knowledge. I I know those keys. Our Christian experience is a lot like that triangle. On one side is knowledge. And Jesus said in this verse, if you know these things, so you have to begin by, by knowing them, knowing what they are. And so knowledge is one side. The second side 
I can't decide whether you ought to to label it feeling or experience. Okay? Uh, You can put one or the other. Just understand that experience means it's the way I'm feeling about things. It's the way I'm experiencing things. It's the way you feel based on your knowledge. It involves faith. It involves commitment. It involves trusting those things. You know, we we know certain spiritual principles. I've given you those five principles. You know them. You have to experience them. You have to trust them. You have to know that they're good. And so there's that triangle. The knowledge, the feeling, and then there's a third side of the triangle. And the third side of the triangle is really, really critical. If, If we have our thoughts and we have our emotions, there's one more side to our Christian experience. We know, we feel, but that bottom line is we do, we choose, we will to do what needs to be done. And it's that, it's when we take our will and take action upon our feelings and upon our knowledge that religion begins to work. That your relationship with Jesus begins to work. It's the, the way we balance the, the dimensions of our life. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John 13. He, he's talked to his disciples. He's demonstrated to them some things that are, that are critical. He's demonstrated to them that uh, uh, there's a way to be a servant. If, if uh, you want to be a servant, he goes through these things. You take a towel and you, and you serve one another and you serve each other. And those are the way that, that, you're, a ser- that you're a servant. But he says, you know these things. You're blessed if you do them. In other words, it's not enough to know them. You have to do them. You have to put them into experience. That's the same triangle that, that, that I ask you to drive. Draw knowledge, experience, and doing. Choosing to do what needs to be done. You know, and, and knowledge is the foundation. A house needs a foundation. Your faith needs to have a foundation. And the foundation of your faith is, is what you know, and it's rooted in knowledge. And one of the things about Christianity is that Christianity is rooted in knowledge. It, it's, it's, not a, uh, it, it's not a faith that oozes down from the spiritual or that we feel inside. Christianity is a faith that begins with knowledge. We know some things. We know some things for true. It begins with, with, uh, with knowing who Jesus Christ was. But it's not anti-intellectual. You know, there are some people that believe that Christians must be the most anti-intellectual people there are. You know, that uh, there's something wrong with, with, with what we know. But, you know, Jesus never said... He never said, blessed are the empty-headed. <laughs> he never said that. He said we ought to know things. We ought to understand things. He never put a premium 
on ignorance. Uh, he gives our mind and our intelligence and he expects us to develop them and to learn and to study and to know those things. You know, years ago, uh, and it was a long time ago, I was at a testimony meeting. You know what testimony meeting is? That's where you ask people to stand up and give a testimony of what God's doing in their life and, and you just listen to all these things. And... and uh, I'm not a I'm not a fan of those because I sat there and I thought I think you misunderstood what God's doing and what something else is doing. But uh, they they do those things. This guy stands up and and here's what he said. He well he began to attack those educated folks, those educated liberals who don't believe in nothing. He said, and then he made this statement. I thank God for my ignorance. And you know, you can't find anywhere in Scripture where God says we ought to be ignorant. Where if we're ignorant, we should stay ignorant. We should learn. We should learn knowledge. We should try to learn the principles. We should try to learn and develop our mind and our knowledge. <coughs> in fact, there's a beautiful picture that John points in his that John paints in his gospels and in his letters. And and that picture that he paints, and he uses it over and over again when he uses to describe Jesus Christ. Even from the, the very first chapter of the very first gospel of John, John says, Light has come into the world. And when he uses that light, he's talking about Jesus Christ. But it has come against the darkness. It's the enlightenment that comes in Jesus Christ. And John describes Jesus as the light that dispels the darkness of ignorance and superstition. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. And, and we quote that a lot. Uh, and, and not just in, in the church. I see it sometimes in a library. There'll be a sign at a library that says, you shall know the truth. And with the idea that if you just knew all the truths that, that were in that library, that you would be free. But we know that that's not true. It's not worked. Uh, today, we are the most enlightened people, the most educated people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. Ever. Yet we still have the same basic problems that the cavemen had when they lived in their caves and, and hunted for, for their groceries. We, we still have uh, hate and murder and selfishness and wars and brutality. We just, we, we've just upped the level of being able to, to handle those things or do those things or carry those things out. And selfishness consumes the intellectual and the educated as well as the uneducated and the primitive. So that's kind of what that guy had in mind when he said, I thank God for my ignorance. What he was saying is that getting smart doesn't get you right. Getting smart doesn't make you okay. And folks, getting smart doesn't make you happy. Now that's what Jesus said. Blessed are you if you know those things. 
It's good to know those things. What did Jesus mean when he said, you shall know the truth? Well, he wasn't talking about an accumulation of knowledge and facts and information. He was talking about that thing that philosophers throughout all the ages have sought for. And that is the identifying thing in who we are as humans that makes things stick together. And uh, every religion has a word that they use for that. And they, they say, if we could just lay hold of that one great all-encompassing truth that includes life and its existence and its purpose, then we would have it. And Jesus said, you found it. He said, I am that truth. I am that truth. Search no more. Just across the page in, uh, from John 13 is John 14. In John 13, Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In John 14, he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. And he's still sitting at the same supper table with them, and he says to them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he is saying to them, Here in me you find encompassed all that I am, the ultimate truth, the ultimate way of life, the abundant and eternal life is in me. I am the truth. And that's what we need to have. Uh, theologically, uh, the, the word that's used for that truth is, is kerygma. That's the Greek word for it, the kerygma. And the early preachers, the early disciples, when they were preaching, uh, you know, recorded in the book of Acts and then in some, in some of the letters that uh, Paul and Peter and John wrote, we see evidence of those early sermons. And the kerygma was a statement of who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, how he died, how he was resurrected, and what that means for us. That was the content of their sermons. That's what they preached. That was the, the kerygma. It was the proclamation of God in Jesus Christ and who he was. He came in the form of the Son of God and lived among us, died for our sins on the cross, was resurrected for the third day, and was victorious over sin in the grave. And he offers that to us by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. We're going to be reconciled to God. We're going to be made right with God. That's the good news. And that's what Jesus meant when he says, I am the truth. I am all of those things. So draw a circle around that. We have a triangle. Now let's draw a circle around that. Because that's the truth. That's the truth. That's the basis. That's the foundation. Now, you may not know all the doctrine. You may not know what even kerygma means. Forget I even told you that. That's not important. That's not important. You may not know algebra, math, Greek, language, or anything else. But if you know who Jesus was, what he did, and what it means for you, and how you receive it, you know the truth. You know the truth. But if you have that truth, that's the foundation. Jesus said, there's the base. If you know these things. That's what he said in verse 13. If you know these things. If you know these things. 
if you have knowledge of these things. But guys, that's not enough. There is nothing debtor. And I know that's not a legitimate word, but could I use it? Because it really means what I mean what I want it to say. There is nothing debtor. than knowledge without action. Than knowledge without trust. There's nothing deader than a dry intellectualism. Nothing is deader than someone who says, I know the creed, I can recite it. I know all of the issues, I can debate them. I know all the arguments about Christianity, but it's dead, cold, dry knowledge. It's dead. And there's nothing deader. And so Jesus says, that side of the triangle that's intellectual, that side of the triangle that's knowledge, that's not enough. There's a second side. There's the experience side. There's the believing side. There's the emotional side. You know, just like there's some people who like to take the intelligence out of religion, there are other people who want to take the emotion out. Some of us Baptists are the worst about that. We want to take the emotion out of, out of religion. I heard a story about a guy in the Baptist church one time. The preacher was preaching, and the guy said, Praise the Lord! And everybody turned and looked at him. And the preacher was going a little bit more, and he said, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And everybody turned to look at him. And finally, one deacon come down and said, Sir, you'll have to tone it down in here. And he said, but, but, but I got the spirit. And the deacon said, well, you didn't get it here. <laughs> you know, there, there needs to be some emotion in, in who we are and what we do in Jesus Christ. We like and we depend on emotion in other areas of life. You do too. So do I. But sometimes we get the idea that it ought not be a part of of who we are as church people. <laughs> Several years ago, back in the 90s, when we were still living down by Albuquerque, uh, the Western Regionals of the NCAA tournament came to Albuquerque. And uh, I bought tickets to all the games. And uh, one of the games was between the University of California, UCLA, and the University of New Mexico State, the Aggies. Now, most of you know, but, you know, I, Jennifer and I both graduated at the University of New Mexico, Lobos. And there's nothing more anathema to Lobos than Aggies, you know. <laughs> Those two just don't get a just just don't get along. Uh, it, you just don't you just you know it just doesn't work. But one of the games was going to be between UCLA and New Mexico State, and people would say to me, "So, who are you going to be for?" I thought, well, "University of California or University of New Mexico? I'm going to be for the Aggies." And I'd tell them over and over, "I'm going to be for the Aggies." We were on our way in. The guy I was going to the games with. 
He kept saying, you really going to root for the Aggies? He was also a Lobo. I said, yeah, and he just kept saying, I can't. I said, no, I'm going to root for the Aggies. I'm going to root for the state. I'm going to root for New Mexico. And uh, we got down there, and we're sitting there in our seats, and I'm going to root for New Mexico State. I'm going to be an Aggie for a night. And then the Aggies came running out onto the court in the pit where the Lobos play, and they had their fringy outfits on and everything, and they come right out there, and they started playing the New Mexico fight song, New Mexico State fight song, and I said, I can't do it. (laughs) My heart wouldn't let me do it. There's emotion there. And so my mind keeps saying, go New Mexico State, and my heart kept saying, go UCLA. You know, it works that way. And it works that way in your life and other things besides sports that will. Emotion has a part in who we are and what we do. It has a part in your marriage. If you're married, emotion is a part. And a good marriage has to have an emotional dimension. It's a sad, sad marriage that has no feeling or emotion in it. On the Internet, you can enroll in those matchmaking programs and they'll send you a form or they'll put it on the line and you'll fill out this form and they'll take all the things that you say you like and all the things about you and they'll run it through their computer program and they'll match it with all these things and all these things about other people uh, that, that match you and they'll send you back the perfect match. Now I've heard a lot of folks that did find their spouse that way. It does work. But you don't get that match and go over and knock on the door and say, hey, my computer match is your computer match, and so let's get married. Well, the facts are there, but what's missing? It's the emotion. There has to be the emotion there. There has to be the emotion. There, there may be a rational basis for it, but there needs to be the feeling, I love you, and you love me, and we're meant for each other, and we feel inside for each other. And, and that's true in your faith with Jesus Christ. There is emotion. There again and again, Jesus said, I came that your joy might be fulfilled. He kept saying, happy are you, blessed are you. He kept saying that we should rejoice over and over again. I read a bunch of them to you a couple of weeks ago. Paul said, my joy is made full in you. Rejoice, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice again and again and again. And our Christian faith needs to be overflowing with joy and overflowing with a victory that we have in Christ Jesus. And and the same thing that's true with intellectualism is true with emotion. If you don't have it, it's dead. But you can go too far that way too. So what's the balance? The balance is that bottom bar. Without that bottom bar, it's wide open and anything can happen. With that bottom bar, there is the thing that holds it together. 
And that's what Jesus said. Jesus says, I think what he's saying here is that a part of your faith, you're to show that you're happy by what you do, by how you act, by the way you go out full of life regardless of what's happening to you. Somebody says, how are you? And you start giving them a recital of all the things that are wrong with you and your aches and your pains and your troubles and all the ways people have mistreated you. You know what Jesus said? Jesus says, be happy. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. There are going to be those things happen to you in the world. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so, and so the Christian has that stewardship of attitude. We talk about stewardship of money, but there's also a stewardship of attitude. The stewardship of attitude is no matter what the sorrow or the heartbreak or the disappointment, and I've seen folks who've been abused and mistreated. I've seen them carry a cross. I've seen them heartbroken, heartaches, sorrow yet inside they're the most radiant happy joy filled persons I've ever met I have an illustration where I'm not going to share it this morning well I will too that one, of, one of the people that I look at and, I, and I've most admired in ministry um, when his first child was born it was a baby girl and uh, her name was Jessie that's what they named her and uh, he held her and the doctor said she'll never live she'll never make it to a year and so he prayed, he held her, his wife prayed, they held her, they, they prayed together over little baby Jessie, and when she was about eight months old, she died. She didn't make it. Sorrow, sorrow in that house. He has a, um, he has a digestive condition that he just has to work with all the time. It's always bothering him. But you know what? Until you get to know him personally in a friendship way, you don't know that all those things ever happen because he is the most spirit-filled, the most joyful Christian I ever met. And it's not until you know him for a long time that you know that he's had all those sorrows in his life. And that's what God calls us to be, to have a stewardship of attitude. Not to be critical and hostile and always in conflict with others down in the dumps and pulling others down with us. That's not a witness for real Christianity. Just Jesus said, if you know how to be happy, be happy. That's what he said. If you know the keys of happiness, put them to use. Be happy.
But you do that when you do them. Because the triangle is not complete without the gap. Until there's a side on the gap. Jesus actually said that you would be better off if you did not know the keys than to know the keys and not put them to work. He said to the church at Capernaum, the people at Capernaum, he said, you people of Capernaum, you have heard, you know, you feel, but you don't do it. And then he says it would be better for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon were the the wicked cities on on the coast. They worshipped Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And they never knew, and therefore they never felt the calling to follow Jehovah. But Jesus said, God's going to go easier on them than he's going to go on you who have heard the story and don't do it. In the Old Testament, there's a, there's a book. It's the story of Jonah the prophet. You guys know that story. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Uh, Nineveh is a wicked city over to the east of Jerusalem, over to the east of the uh, Israel where Jonah was. And they need to know the gospel. They need to know about God. And uh, the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Do you know Nineveh? And Jonah says, Yeah, I know Nineveh. I know the people are wicked there. I know that I ought to preach about God to them. So he had the knowledge. He knew what he needed to do. Uh, He felt like he needed to go. And so, you know, he had everything he needed to be obedient to God. And so he got up one day and went down to the coast, to Joppa, and bought a ticket to go to Tarshish. Tarshish is Spain. 180 degrees the other direction from Nineveh. So he knew what to do, but he didn't do it. He knew what God had called him for, but he didn't respond. The furthest that a person could get from Nineveh would be Tarshish. And that's where he went. So, you might want to pull your feet up under the chairs a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on your toes for a minute. I'm going to step on yours because I've been stepping on mine. That's fair, isn't it? I want to know what kind of ticket you're buying. What direction are you going? You know what God wants to do. You know what needs to be done. But are you buying a ticket to Tarshish? Jesus said, if you know these things, now we're talking about the keys to happiness. Jesus said, if you know these things, You're only happy if you do them. Knowing them is no good. You have to do them. So there's something in your life that that you're not happy with. Something has changed and you don't like it. 
something is, is different and you've asked God to remove it. You've prayed for God to change it and nothing's happened. And now you know, knowing the first key of happiness, that you just need to accept the grace of God and adjust to it. So you say, I know I need to adjust. I really ought to adjust. I know that's what Scripture says, but I'm buying a ticket to Tarshish today. I'm not adjusting. I'm not going to adjust to this thing that's making me unhappy. It isn't fair that it's in my life. And so I'm not going to do anything about it. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Pastor, I know what you said about number two. I know that I need to be useful. I know that I need to rededicate my life to being useful to others. I need to ease up on my selfishness and be more open to the kingdom of God and what God wants me to do. And I know I would surely feel happier if I did it, but not today. I'm going to Tarshish. Maybe after I get swallowed by a fish, then I'll turn around and go back. <laughs> I, ought to, I know I ought to make a decision in favor of Jesus. I ought to be more faithful. I ought to be more useful to the kingdom of God. But Lord, just give me a ticket to Tarshish. Or you know everything the Bible says about forgiveness. Or maybe not everything, but you know a lot of things that the Bible says about forgiveness. And we talked about the excuses we use to, to not forgive. You, you know what they are. And you know that if you would forgive the things that are, that, that are disrupting in your life, the things that have been done to you in your life, if you would forgive those, that you would find happiness. But the truth is, going to Tarshish is easier than forgiving. You know, you know you need to learn to practice gratitude more, learn to be more thankful of all that God has given you and of all the friends in your life that have made a difference and of all the people in your past that have made you what you are. You know, you know you need to put key number four into permanent business in your life and live a life of gratitude. But I'll take a ticket to Tarshish for now and then last week we talked about key number five holiness I know I need to confess my sins to the Lord I know I'm not where I ought to be in my relationship with God I know that there are broken relationships with others with family with friends I know that there's bitterness and hostility. And you say, I know the Christian thing to do. I feel like I ought to. But you know, I just don't want to do it now. And so you buy a ticket the other direction.
Jesus said, I'm going to go away. I'm only going to be with you a little while longer. And then I'm going to go away. And you will not have the kind of rich, real, joy-filled, victorious life in me until you close up that triangle and you do it. And you do it. Now, what does that mean to you? I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know your heart. I don't know where you are. You'll have to interpret yourself because the Holy Spirit deals with you directly in your own life. But I do know that these verses are for you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what do you need to do? What's God called you to do? How do we need to, to, to respond? You know the message, God will forgive your sins. He will make you holy. Jesus says, happy are you if you do that. You know that if you use your gifts and ministry and be useful to him, Jesus says you'll be happy. You know that you can, if you just have gratitude and thanksgiving in your heart for what God has done, that you'll be blessed. You know you need to forgive, but you don't. All I'm asking this morning is don't buy another ticket to Tarshish. Don't buy another ticket that way. Let's do what God's called us to do. Let's be the people God's called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would enable us